Hi, listeners. Welcome back to the AC Podcast. This is Andy Steiger. I am here with one of the newest additions to the AC team, Wes Huff. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm a sporadic voice on the podcast, but uh, I will be a more um, more frequent voice from now on. Yes, you will. You have been sporadic. We've enjoyed that so much, in fact, that we asked you to stay. You've enjoyed me being sporadic, or you, you've enjoyed me so much that you've asked me to stay. That's, the, that could have been read both ways. And, and I'm going to leave it that way. I'm just going to, it's going to be left with a big question mark. No. Okay. <laughs> we, uh, we appreciate the work you do, and we are so glad to have you part of the AC team. This is something we've been uh, talking about for a little while and has actually come about. Uh, for those of you who do not know, uh, Wesley Huff. We, uh, we call him Wes here at uh, AC. Uh, he is out in Ontario, really close to Toronto University because that's where he's doing his PhD. Wes, for those people who don't know you, just give them a thumbnail sketch of, of yourself. Um, I'm just your regular neighborhood guy. Um, <laughs> Maybe you should start like, that what, over. Like Spider-Man? Yeah, or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, I'm, I'm just your usual uh, neighborhood Spider-Man. Uh, I You are wearing a tank top today, by the way. So. I am. It's it's pretty toasty here. I don't know what it's like out there in BC, but we've been getting up into the 30s with the Humidex. And... Okay, I, I thought you were just trying to intimidate me. I wasn't... Well, a little bit of both. I, sure. I got to set a standard. Yeah. <laughs> No, uh, like you said, my name's Wes. Uh, I live out here in Toronto with my wife and my two kids. My son is two, and my daughter just turned eight months old. So uh, I'm uh, getting uh, a semi-regular number of hours of sleep a night. And I'm doing my PhD at the University of Toronto in uh, Biblical Studies. We've been trying to get outdoors a little bit more now that the weather's nice. There's lots of opportunities. Things are still relatively shut down here in Ontario right now, but you can still go out to the parks and take a hike and do all that good stuff. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm glad to be here on the team and excited about all the plans for the future. Hey, listen, today we're going to be talking on the subject of the Dead Sea Scrolls and some new discoveries that came out. We're also going to talk about some other stuff. In particular, there's a post you did that I wanted to talk about. Before I even talk about that post, though, there's a post that you do periodically that I have had various people message me and say, hey, explain this. And, and I've said, I can't, but I'll ask you. Oh. <laughs> so periodically you will post yourself either swinging nunchucks or, or a bow or something. Explain that for our for our listeners. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, that's a childhood obsession with kung fu movies that went way too far. <laughs> if I'm if I'm completely honest, um, that I picked up. Now hold on. Now are we talking like Bruce Lee movies here or what? Like, do you have like a yeah like, yeah? Give a go to. You name it. All the all the like uh, bootleg DVD VHSs from Chinatown. Um, you know. The good old Enter the Dragons and, uh, uh, you know, Bruce Lee, Tony Jaw, uh, Jet Li, uh, Jackie Chan, you name it. I was like, I know this is a safe place, so I'll uh, I'll be vulnerable here. There are some videotapes of of myself doing some kung fu moves for uh, for a very old video camera 
Now, but you, you've just embraced it. You're just like, you know what? I'm done with PhD studies for the day. I'm just going to go grab a bow and swing it around. I respect that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, to my parents' chagrin, I did a lot of that as a kid, broke a lot of light bulbs, um, swing things around, uh, have a few scars on my hand from maybe being too adventurous with a kitchen knife. Uh, but that was, you know, th- that was something that I, I did when I was young and foolish. And now that I'm older and foolish, uh, and when the pandemic happened, I just tried to, you know, kill some time by seeing what I could remember and, um, picked up, a yeah, staff, or I have a sword on my wall in my office. It's a, a Scottish Claymore. And so I just swung it around, pulled out my phone one day, put it on Instagram, but people seem to like it, so. <laughs> you know, this is something I find interesting about you. So, like, for me, doing my PhD study, there were times where I'm like, okay, I've had enough. I My eyes need a break. And so I would go grab a hammer and go build something. So I appreciate you just go grab a sword and uh, swing it around. So that Actually, if you're not swinging a sword, you actually are an incredible artist. Like, like seriously, I don't know, if listeners, if you take a look at some of the artwork this guy does, it's ridiculous. Uh, but that you also do that as well. I dabble. I dabble. You don't want me to pick up a hammer. I am. Um, I'm many things. Uh, a handyman is not one of them. And so if you want all your picture frames put up crooked, I'm your man. But otherwise, I'll leave leave all that work to you, Andy. Appreciate that. Uh, hey, listeners, I'd encourage you to take a look at Wes's Facebook page or uh, website. He periodically comes across some incredible news and shares that. One of the most recent can be found on Facebook. He shared a post about a new discovery of a stele in Egypt. Uh, can you just tell our listeners about this? I think this is, this is a fascinating find. Yeah, so earlier in June, there was a uh, a discovery made by a farmer by accident. So this actually happens relatively often in places like Egypt. Um, in fact, one of the reasons why uh, so many manuscripts, biblical or otherwise, were discovered in sort of the last 200 years uh, was because farmers were looking to uh, cultivate particular areas of land and they were digging in the dirt. In fact, uh, there's an interesting connection with this one that's a bit of an aside, but uh, when slavery was outlawed in the US, the cotton industry took a big hit. But the cotton industry in Egypt with Egyptian cotton started to become more prevalent uh, because as the cotton production in the U.S. went down, the cotton production in Egypt compensated. And a big part of why we discovered manuscripts was because farmers were looking for something that's called sebek. And sebek is basically fertilizer. But it, it consists of the remains of ancient buildings composed of mud brick. So what they do is they dig down in the earth to try to find this uh, this sebak that was high in, in nutrients. And it ended up uh, resulting in, in a lot of ancient discoveries. So a lot of our even biblical manuscripts are a, a result of that. Um but other things happen, like happened last week, where a farmer was just looking to cultivate some land in a particular area in Egypt, and he discovered a what's, what's referred to as a stele. It's a big stone. It kind of looks like a tombstone. When he unearthed the artifact, he then called the, the Tourism and Antiquities Police, because when you live in a place like Egypt, 
there are uh, antiquity departments because if you dig here in Canada, you're not usually going to stumble over gonna, an ancient civilization. You're going to find dirt. Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, you might you might find an earthworm. Yeah, but if you if you uh, if you dig in places like Egypt or Jordan or Israel, there, there is actually a chance that you might discover something like this. Uh, and what this was is as I, I refer to it as a stele, but a stele is basically just an ancient memorial marking stone. So there are uh, ancient Mesopotamian steles. This is an Egyptian stele, and they were usually erected to commemorate an event like a battle won or a treaty signed. Or sometimes they acted as legal documents that were literally carved into stone. In fact, if you think of the typical picture of the Ten Commandments, Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with the the two inscribed tablets, you could actually think of those as mini steles, as like markers of the the Sinai Mosaic Covenant. That's kind of how they they could have acted. Well, this one was interesting in that it refers to a pharaoh that dates to the time of Jeremiah, which is interesting because Jeremiah references this pharaoh. Yeah, so it, it references and has the name inscription of the top of, uh, in Egyptian, it would, his name was uh, Wahabre, but in Hebrew, he's mentioned in Jeremiah 4430 as Hophra. And I actually, I actually have this passage here. Let me just read this for you. This is, again, Jeremiah... 44, starting verse 30, we read, This is what the Lord says. I am going to deliver Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hands of his enemies who want to kill him, just as I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the enemy who wanted to kill him. Yeah, and the other interesting thing about this is that it was discovered near the city of uh, Tapenes, uh, which is in in Egypt, and that particular city is mentioned elsewhere in in Jeremiah, and alongside the stele was discovered a uh, a pavement sort of um, entry stones that that they think was the cobbling stones leading up to uh, this pharaoh's palace, and the production of that type of effort is actually also mentioned in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 43, 8 to 10. So uh, while this isn't necessarily like a, a direct evidence for, you know, the trustworthiness of the Bible, uh, or particularly details of the trustworthiness of the Bible, this is what, what we refer to as a corresponding corroboration. There are enough little details, even just the mentioning of this guy in other ancient artifacts and the mentioning of him in the Bible, that work as corroborating evidence to show like this is these stories that we find in the Bible come from real places and real times. They commemorate real people in history. And uh, for that reason, it's not it's not a proof text, but it is interesting to see how we have these kind of lines of intersection with ancient history that we can, you know, stick a spade in the ground and dig up and the text of the Bible itself. I think this is a good place for us to jump into the discoveries of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's been about 50 years since new scrolls, new uh, pieces of the Dead Sea Scrolls have been found. They were largely dug up in, in between you know, the, the 1950s and, and the 1970s. And so the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that if, if people are aware of them, 
that we think of things like the Great Isaiah Scroll, uh, which is the the most well preserved of these uh, these documents, and um, uh, over nine hundred and seventy scrolls were assembled from more than ten thousand fragments that make up the collection of what we refer to as the Dead Sea Scrolls. So not all of them were were biblical books. Uh, there were also some other books that were included that aren't uh, what we would consider books that we include in our Bible, that that doesn't mean that they were considered scripture. Then they, this was just an amalgamation, a library. And, and really what we refer to as the Dead Sea Scrolls is just a collection of documents that were found in caves around the area of the Dead Sea. So uh, we're not actually entirely sure who wrote and copied and stored the Dead Sea Scrolls, although it's largely accepted that they were this group that's referred to as the Essenes uh, that lived in this area called Qumran on, on the banks of the Dead Sea. But really we're talking about documents that date anywhere from the third century BC to the first century AD. So it, it's a big span of time. So along with, uh, you know, there were 39 copies of the Psalms, 33 copies of Deuteronomy, 24 copies of Genesis. You also had other, uh, what we refer to as intertestamental books, books written between the end of the Old Testament in Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament uh, uh, with Matthew. So you had the Book of Enoch, the Book of Jubilees. Uh, you had documents that were particularly just limited to the Qumran community, like the War Scroll. Um, and so the Bible talks about that they talk about the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and the Essenes were just another sort of religious sect that existed in in Jesus's day. Not only did they re reject the, the Roman imperialism, they actually rejected the religious institution that was set up in Jerusalem. So they thought that the religious institution was corrupt enough that they left and created their own, and they actually had a mini temple out in, in Qumran, and they were, they were like the ultra-religious sect. Uh, they wore white robes, they had their own rules, um, they even had their own calendar <laughs> that was different from the calendar that was being used in Jerusalem. So they were they were almost a completely a different sect of their own that had a, a lot of their own rules and regulations outside of that, and they'd removed themselves removed themselves from the greater group of uh, religious society in Jerusalem and had gone out into the 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 Judean desert along the Dead Sea and uh, had created the, this sort of uh, hermit community out there. Um, and, and they're largely uh, agreed upon to be the producers of most of these types of documents. One of the documents found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it doesn't get talked about a whole lot that I found quite fascinating, uh, is the Copper Scroll, which is a, a treasure map. Yeah, uh, although most of the scrolls were parchment, um, some being papyrus, uh, there there was this one that that is known as the copper scroll and and was made in copper and and it lists it has this map with sixty four locations, uh, sixty three of which are said to be caches of silver and gold, and although some have tried, nobody's actually discovered 
where these supposed caches are. But it's it's an interesting mystery. I know, isn't it great? It's like this whole idea of like a treasure ma- map and like X marks a spot. You you think like that's just kind of fairy tale? No, there's actually ancient treasure maps, and this is one of them. But no, you're right. Nobody's been able to figure it out. So some wonder because they haven't been able to figure it out. Like, is this actually a legit treasure map? Like, what is this thing? Yeah, and and when we're talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered, so just to, to backtrack, um, these new ones were discovered in, in March of of 2021. This was an effort uh, of the Israelite Antiquities Department. So they had set a goal not that long ago, um, really within the last decade, uh, that they were going to excavate 600 caves. So a lot of these caves had already been excavated to some degree. Um, there are a, a number of caves that we we found the Dead Sea Scroll fragments in. Uh, we've also found them in places like uh, En Gedi and Jericho and Masada. But the Israelite Antiquity Department had this goal: we're gonna we're gonna go we're gonna investigate uh, six hundred of these caves, and at this point, they're around half of that. So they're around number three hundred of the six hundred. Um, and in this effort, which was actually, if you read what happened, it's it's pretty impressive. They went in with drones. They were rappelling down the side of the hills. Uh, yeah, I read and, about one of them. The cave was 200 feet down. Yeah. Which, which makes you wonder how, how these people got into the, these caves. I mean, they must have been using ropes of some sort. To... Well, and if you think about the land, the landscape has changed quite a bit. So some of these caves might not have been as remote as they are today. I can appreciate that, but I was still thinking to myself, 200 feet, though, is quite a bit. Like, I can imagine, you know, of course, the the geography is going to change slightly, but I don't know that it's going to change 200 feet. Like, I, I don't know, but maybe. Uh, that one seems a lot to me. Yeah, and, and just uh, for the, the cake topper, the the scrolls that were found in March were in a cave that's uh, known as the Cave of Horrors. And it's known as the Cave of Horrors because uh, when it was initially discovered in the 60s, it had 40 skeletons that were thought of to be the bodies of Jews who were fleeing the Romans during uh, the Bar Kokhva revolt. And, And let's just talk about that real quick. You've got two major revolts that are significant, uh, particularly when we're talking about uh, New Testament era, where you've got the, the, the revolt that happens in AD 70, in which the temple's destroyed. But then there's a second revolt that happens 70 years later, the idea being for, for the Jews that when the temple was first destroyed by Babylon— they they were able to rebuild their temple 70 years later the the persians the persians released them and they were able to to do that in fact the persians helped them rebuild it but they thought they thought well you know god allowed that 70 years after the temple was first destroyed maybe god will favor us in this battle against the romans this time it's similarly like happened with babylon with the babylonians with with the persians and that did not go well for them. No. And and so it's it's named the Bar Kokhva Revolt because it, it was led by a guy named Simon Bar Kokhva. Um, and so this happened and uh, individuals who had fled during this time 
I guess, took refuge in this cave. Maybe they thought that, you know, um, reinforcements were coming, were going to come and get them. And, and they died. And so they were found there. And so this, this cave was known as the Cave of Horrors because when they originally went in there, it was just full of bodies. Yeah, and so uh, these new fragments, uh, about um, 80 fragments of parchment were discovered. They were also discovered with a basket. And this basket, if you, if you Google pictures of it, it's incredibly well-preserved. And it's been dated to 10,500 years ago. Which is incredible. I, I saw it. I did see a picture of this because I actually saw them excavating it. They actually had to dig into the cave. Like, so they're in the cave and they're digging down inside this cave and you see this basket. It's incredible to me that it's, per, that, that it's so well preserved. I mean, it was in the dirt. Yeah. Yeah. It really is amazing. And, and the, the fact that it, it looks like a basket after 10,000 years. I mean, I wouldn't look like a human after 10,000 years, so it's got <laughs> one up on a, me. This is an important aspect that people don't necessarily realize, and I found interesting with the time that I spent in Israel, Jordan, and Egypt, is, is that it, that climate, not only, yes, you've had ancient civilizations there for sure, but one of the reasons why you find so much stuff is the climate, right? I mean, it, it is just a dry, hot climate. I mean, that's one of the problems where even here, like in the Americas, for example, we've had people here a long time as well, but given our climate, things do not survive here, right? They, they, uh, they decompose quite quickly, given particularly how much rain we get. But, but there, I mean, you, you just got an arid climate. Things stay. Yeah, it's it's just a it's the perfect climate per, for preserving things. I mean, this is why mummies from Egypt look so well preserved, along with the embalming process that obviously preserved them. Um, you know, you have similar embalming processes in Central and South America, and the bodies don't look nearly as well preserved because it's just not as dry. And so this is, I mean, another reason why a lot of our biblical manuscripts come from places like Egypt is because it, you know, if if you have paper and it's in a place like Egypt, uh, it's going to survive better than if you have paper and it's in a place like British Columbia. It's just <laughs> wetter in British Columbia. Um, yeah, so it's, I, don't, it's, I don't even think my college papers survived. Like, they're gone, man. It's true. It's true. And so it's pretty incredible. You know, you have this this 10,000-year-old basket. Um, they also discovered a 6,000-year-old uh, uh, skeleton of a child. So these things predate the the Dead Sea Scrolls by by quite a bit. These are older artifacts. So clearly this this cave was being used and predates any of this stuff. No, but one thing though that was discovered that does date with the Dead Sea Scrolls were, were some coins that were found, right? Yeah, yeah. So th the fragments are earlier than the Bar Kokhba revolt. Um, so the, the fragments are, are coming uh, somewhere around the first century BC. It's largely believed that these new fragments are sections of fragments that we already had, uh, of a manuscript that we already have, and they're just more to add to this group. Because uh, these fragments are, are tiny. So they're about 80, 80 fragments, and the largest ones are about the size of your fingernail. Um, so... 
Putting them together is a real effort. And when they pieced them together, very carefully, as you can imagine, what they came up with was a text from Zechariah 8 and Nahum 1. And they've largely connected them with, with two previously discovered scrolls. Uh, at least at this point, that's what they think they are. That they're part of this this section of uh, a scroll that we already had in existence. We've just discovered more of it. It's it's in Greek, so it's not the majority of the Dead Sea Scrolls were in in Hebrew, um, uh, some were in Aramaic, but uh, and and then others were in Greek, and so this was a a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Oh, I just just quickly on that point, I think it's helpful to to know that you know this is this is uh, pretty common. In fact, what we 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 refer to this as the the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That this is the this is often, particularly when you're reading your Bible, uh, when when you have writers quoting scripture they're, qu- they're quoting the old testament they're often quoting the greek translation of the old testament yeah here's i'm i'm gonna throw a wrench in that this is greek but it's not the septuagint so this is a this is a, another text so if you think of like um there, there wasn't just one septuagint The Septuagint is kind of a catch-all term that describes a certain section of Greek translations of the Old Testament. So if if we're talking about like English translations, you can have an ESV, an NASB, and an NIV, right? You could have different variations of the Septuagint. But there's another kind of more fringe line of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is known as the Theodosian Recension. And it's not the Septuagint. It's it's a little bit more. Um, some sometimes we refer to like a a word for word or thought for thought way of describing translation. The Septuagint is more of a thought for thought translation of the Hebrew Bible, in the sense that the translation styles that it exemplifies are going for the meaning of what's being said rather than like the exact uh, parallel translation of the word or the word order. To give an example of this, we often use the phrase, particularly here in British Columbia, it's raining cats and dogs. Now, there's two two different ways you could translate that. You could translate that word for word, it's raining cats and dogs, but uh, you could imagine that for other cultures or people, I mean, that could get lost in translation, and they might literally think there were cats and dogs coming out of the sky. Uh, or you could go thought for thought, right, and just say, oh, it was raining heavily. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a German phrase which um, I know, but for the uh, people who actually know German, I'm not going to pronounce um, because uh, <laughs> they'll get mad at me. But it, it, it translates. Uh, if you translate it for word for word, it comes out to uh, the morning bird has gold in its mouth. The morning bird has gold in its mouth, and you're like, well, what does that mean? Well, if you translated it word for word, that's what it would say. Um, sorry, not the morning bird. The morning hour has gold in its mouth. But if, if we have a, a equivalent in English, it's the early bird catches the worm. And so th- if we were to, to translate that phrase in German word for word, it would be uh, the morning hour has gold in its mouth. But if we are to translate it as uh, sort of a, a thought for thought, trying to get the idea rather than exactly what's in the wording, it would be the early bird catches the worm. 
And so the Septuagint is a little bit more like an NIV than an NASB. Which this might be new for some people who are listening to this. So so let's let's just kind of help you to understand that when we translate the Bible, you have to make a choice. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you have Bibles, say, say the NIV, this kind of sits in the middle. There are moments where they go thought for thought and moments where they go word for word. Uh, I would argue, I, you, you, <laughs> I don't know where you stand on that, but that's, I, would, I tend to put NIV in the middle. Now, on the far extreme of word for word, you have interlinary Bible that is just literally word for word uh, translation. Uh, you and then you've got ones that are a little more readable, of course, that are things like the NASB, and then on the other extreme, you've you've got things like, well, what would you put over there, West, like the New Living Translation, or, uh, or like, to the far extreme of paraphrasing is the message, uh, things like that. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good that's a good way of putting it uh, there's there's sort of a continuum that bible translations exist on and i think um i mean uh, when i was in seminary i i heard the phrase uh the literal the better and i don't necessarily think that's true um and at the exact same time if you really get into the biblical languages and you're doing your own translation and then you're looking at a lot of these, uh, you know, very popular Bible translations, the ESV, the NSB, the NIV, you find out that it's it's impossible to be word for word or thought for thought in every place in any instance. Um, something like the NASB might be very a word for word in one verse and then the next word, they have to be thought for thought because you just can't you can't follow the text that closely. So even these sort of categories, which I think can be helpful um, when we kind of chart them and put them on a graph, which I've done. Um, I have graphs on my website. He actually, Wes has some great graphs on his website you can take a look at. Yeah, so when we're talking about Bible translations, they exist on this type of continuum. And so you have something like the NASB, which is more of a, of a, word-for-word translation in general. If we're just generalizing, if we're broad brushing, it tends to be a little bit closer to the word order, tends to try to get to uh, what exactly is being said in the Greek or the Hebrew rather than trying to render the meaning in a way that may even be a little bit more readable. But that will change verse to verse, chapter to chapter, book to book, or testament to testament. Uh, And then you have something like the NIV, which once again, generalizing, will be more of a of a, uh, a thought for thought. Uh, sometimes in the scholarship, this is what's referred to as formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. And so generally, uh, translations take different word order choices. Um, but at the end of the day, you're translating out of a language and into another language. So you're going to be uh, interpreting to some degree the text in order just to make it readable. Um, we don't have to go uh, too down that rabbit hole. Uh, but there is, I mean, even something, there's something called the historical present in Greek uh, where it says things like Jesus goes into the temple. Well, we don't write Jesus goes into the temple. We write Jesus went into the temple because it doesn't sound right in English to say Jesus goes into the temple, although that that that's a historical present. We change it to um, we we change sort of the tense 
to make it more readable in English. Uh, now, obviously, that doesn't affect anything super significant, um, but but these choices are made by translators, and so it, this goes for ancient translations uh, as well. And so, in that sense, there's uh, the Septuagint is a catch-all term, and generally, the Dead Sea Scrolls that are Greek are Septuagintal, but occasionally, you'll get some of these other ones that are Theodosian. Uh, in in their their sort of text type, if you want to label it that. Now, was is this then fair to say that these scrolls that are found are Dead Sea scrolls? Why why incorporate them into the idea of Dead Sea scrolls? It almost sounds like they're connected. Well, in in the uh, the simplest way of putting it, everything that's found in the caves around the Dead Sea are the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and that, that I guess that's what I'm getting at here is that actually seems kind of problematic to me. It's like, well, actually, you found some fragments in a, in a cave, and it could be confusing, and that some people might think this is all part of one document, sort of thing, thing, sort of thing, or the, one cache or one time period, sort of idea. Yeah. Yeah, the Dead Sea Scrolls are more of a collection of a library uh, of the Jewish communities that lived along the the edge of the the Dead Sea. I, I think that that's a much better way of understanding this. This is this is a collection of documents in this area of of Israel. Yeah, yeah, and and so the the ones that were found in March were found at, at a place called Nahal Hever. Uh, in the Bar Kokhva caves, and uh, the discovery was made um, of these these fragments in that particular area. And I, I think, actually, Andy, there are two noteworthy points for these manuscripts, because the listeners might be thinking, this is very interesting, but so what? Um, the, the two things are that uh, that although it is, th these fragments are Greek, the divine name is rendered in Paleo-Hebrew. So the, the divine name of God, Yavhei Vavhei, um, what in your English translations, modern English translations translate it as uh, all caps, lowercase L-O-R-D. So if you see that in your Old Testament, what you're seeing is actually Yavhei Vavhei, Yahweh uh, in the Old Testament. And the reason it's it's translated as just simply Lord is because it's following actually a an old Jewish tradition where a little a little bit before Jesus's day, instead of uh, saying God's name out loud uh, in order to not take the Lord's name in vain, they would simply say Lord. They would replace it with the Hebrew word Adonai, and when they read it out loud, they would say they would say Lord instead of of Yahweh. Um, and uh, the vast majority of English translations just carry on uh, this tradition for a, a number of different reasons. But this text is written in Greek, and then all of a sudden, when it comes to God's name in the text, it doesn't just have it in Hebrew, it has it in Paleo-Hebrew, which is actually the, the more ancient form of Hebrew than the Hebrew script that you think of if you see uh, Hebrew written down. It looks a little bit more like, say, a cuneiform, um, like a uh, an ancient Mesopotamian uh, type of script. Uh, but, I mean, uh, alphabets and language evolve over time. And so the Hebrew that we have today that's written down, either if you pick up a, 
uh, a Hebrew Old Testament or if you look at, say, modern Hebrew, that script is, is a, a later form of script. And the ancient, ancient script is what's referred to as Paleo-Hebrew. So for some reason or other, the producers of this particular, these particular scrolls have chosen not just to sort of go uh, with a particular tradition that substitutes God's name for Adonai, um, not even just to write it in Hebrew as Yavheh Vavheh in the Hebrew, but have done so in like an ancient, ancient script. Okay, so Wes, what then do you think is is the significance of the this use of 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 God's name in in ancient Hebrew? I think what we're seeing is a a reverence that is coming out within the text by the producers of this particular Jewish group, whoever they are. I think we're seeing a piety. That's coming out that whoever this group was that produced these texts, there's a clear indication that they consider this particular text important and important enough that it contains something that's holy and they're preserving something that's special, even within the text that's already being considered scriptural. I think that's the first aspect of why uh, this is noteworthy. The second thing that I think is noteworthy that we find in these manuscripts is that we're discovering new scrolls and caves, and that's opening more potential to further discoveries. I mean, we we haven't exhausted the the knowledge of the text of the Bible. We're always expanding and 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 broadening our scope in how we understand the text. And that's not radically changing the text at any point. You know, we're not finding uh, more and more, and it's shaping the way that we read in such a way that, you know, we have to completely alter our Bible. It's actually just confirming that these things have a history and a credibility uh, that stems, you know, in this case, um, beyond 2,000 years. This predates Jesus. And so these types of discoveries, although in some ways they, they may seem insignificant, in the broader scope, I think they help to encourage us that, that our faith is built in something concrete, uh, whether it's the steely that we were talking about at the beginning that kind of uh, gives lip service to the fact, as I said before, that you know our Bible is talking about real places and real times and real individuals that we can place on a map or a timeline or uh, find in a history book. It, we're not dealing with fairy tales. These types of discoveries, they help us to have confidence uh, that what we're reading is, is true uh, and is relevant and applies in the first century BC uh, or the 21st century AD. You know, this is something that I asked you, uh, Wes, earlier this year. I, I teach an apologetics course, and my students were asking me some questions that I had no idea how to answer. So I, I tapped you on the shoulder and said, "Hey, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you some questions that that were thrown at me uh, that uh, that you can uh, address for my class." Wes did a great job. Uh, I love the wealth of knowledge that you've gleaned over the years, particularly in your PhD studies, and what a what a blessing that was for my class. But in that, I asked you a question that I that I think is interesting as we as we close our podcast here. 
And that is, in your studies, Wes, have, has your faith been strengthened? You know, as you um, do this PhD work, uh, your confidence in the Scripture, has it grown? It has. It's given me a confidence and an establish, establishment in the credibility of the text of the Bible. You know, I, I may have a bias here, but I think the number one apologetic question relates to can we trust the foundation of our worldview that comes from the scriptures? You know, we, we believe in this, this guy, Jesus, and we find out who that guy, Jesus, is and his character and what he's done through the pages of scripture. And I think the more we find, the more it elaborates that truth. It is interesting with the prevalence of progressive Christianity these days, uh, a lot of the questions that are, that are going on in that, in that movement actually do circle back to this question of can we trust the Bible? And, and so I think these sorts of conversations are, are incredibly important, particularly right now. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And when you start to erode that credibility, you start to see the different theological foundation blocks uh, be chipped away. Um, once we start to go at the, the truthfulness and the, the sufficiency and the credibility of Scripture, we can say, you know, well, well, this, you know, it's historically been interpreted this way. And I know the text says this, but, you know, we live in an age where we know philosophical things and scientific things and uh, so on and so forth, that those authors, they just didn't know. They just didn't know those things. So we are more knowledgeable. Um, it's, it's what C.S. Lewis referred to as chronological snobbery. But once you start to chip away at those things, what you're left with is not a Jesus of history. Uh, ironically, it's a Jesus that looks like you. <laughs> Jesus of the Bible doesn't look like me, and that's good. But when Jesus starts to look more and more like you and have exactly your values and your thought processes, uh, ironically, that's— Yeah, and worldview. Ironically, that's what Jesus referred to as idolatry. You're making yourself into Jesus, and that's dangerous. And I think it, it stands and it falls on how we understand what God has said, right? That's, that's the, the first temptation of, of the serpent in the garden. Has God really said? And I think the more and more I learn, the more and more I realize, yes, God has said, and we can trust it. Hey, everyone, Troy here. I hope you enjoyed the latest podcast. Pray that it was challenging, encouraging, and as well informative. I wanted to take a quick second to acknowledge the two newest additions to the AC team, Wesley Huff, whom you just heard, and Jane Tui. Make sure you tune into the upcoming podcast as you get to know each of them. I'm sure it won't take long before you understand how excited we are to have them. Just another quick note, as many of you know, Canada is starting to open up again, specifically in the realm of social activities. That means things are about to get really busy over here. We have some exciting ideas in the works and some incredible opportunities are being presented to us across Canada. So of course, we are prayerfully considering our next steps. That being said, much of what we do couldn't be possible without the cheerful and generous donors who have chosen to sow into Apologetics Canada. For those of you who are already one of our donors, we want to say thank you, we honor you, and we appreciate you. As a nonprofit organization, we rely on God sending people with a heart for apologetics to come alongside us in supporting these endeavors. If you're someone who's been interested in supporting us, head over to our website at apologeticscanada.com and select the tab that says Donor. There you can look through the options that best suit your desires. But before you do that, make sure you hit that About tab. Find out who we are, what we are, and why we are. 
Thank you so much for your consideration and for your continued support. Hope to connect with you soon. As always, love God, love people. Bye for now.